Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Fairy tale lies. The legend walks, knocks at your door. I'm the legend. Fairy tale flies. The legend walks, knocks at your door. Harry, Harry, Harry the door's the door's open, dude. Also, I heard you the whole oh. time. That's kind of lame, actually. Um, um, I'm in the middle of something. No, I'm the legend. We never have. Like, what is the reason that we still need to use what? tape? I don't understand why we. Have what to is all this? Crap. It's the four hours of interviews that we cut for that first episode. This was a high-tech studio you had before we got started. You're the one who said we had to use tape for everything because it was more real. Oh, you're lucky I didn't ask for vinyl. It's authentic. Ostention, dude. Ostensing a Zoom call onto reel-to-reel. How about efficiency? How about about the folkloric tie-in to not going Uh, insane? Is that a VHS cassette of Candle Cove sitting in a... 10-year-old container of off-brand Twinkies? Yes, but also no. It's not quite 10. It's probably not great for the tape. Let's, let's stop looking. Stop looking anywhere. What? Is that a raccoon? That's Digby. He's a business expense and also my best friend. I mean, I'm not... What? What? You're a business owner, Mason. This is like... This is gotta be breaking some kind of code. Yeah, I'm Perry, I'm a business owner and this is my business, not yours, so we don't need to worry about it, all right? You'd you be nice to Digby. I really hope you're not charging me for Digby's time, too. I pay him a decent living wage. He's eating Manny's covered tape. He can't be doing too well. And Digby he's... makes me 50% more efficient at editing, just by being there. That explains a ton. So what? What Did you just show up to make fun of me, Perry? Or like, what's the, what's the plan? Yeah. Why did, are you here? Didn't you get the calendar invite? No. Yeah, uh, the yes, what? yes, probably, probably. Yeah, you definitely check it. This is for us to go through the extra tape that we had from Vivian and Kathleen so that we can let listeners hear some of the great stuff that they had to say that we couldn't fit in episode one. Oh, yeah, 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 like the off-week episode, the folk episodes. Yeah. Here, why don't we, I can just show, I can get this yeah. off the desk. Yeah, let's clear some of this crap out of the way, and then we can sit down and talk about it. You can have this chair. I'll, uh, I'll stand. What about that beanbag over there in the corner? It doesn't look too disgusting. I'd appreciate it if you'd be a little bit more charitable towards my business furniture, Perry. I know this might be too much to ask, but do you have any, like, uh, sanitary wipes? Just use my sleeve. It's fine. Here. Okay. Um, So this off-week episode, then, two of the rolls of tape that I have that are ready are actually Vivian Asimos and Kathleen Hale. We got Vivian talking about monster theory, narrative bit more in the Slenderman story and some of the other work she does. And then we got Kathleen Hale talking a bit about mental health care in the United States, as well as our juvenile justice system and some really interesting things I didn't know. So we can run those later. But I was thinking we should probably start with like some takeaways that we have personally from doing the episode. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Since you're standing and already in presentation mode, but what did you learn from this? Yeah, sure. Uh, so... For me, I think it was the basic fact that folklore is any kind of mass generation of a story. You know, something told by a community with no centralized or defined canon. 
Because that just opens the floodgates, right? Fan fiction, fan art, urban legends, conspiracy theories. There's just so much to talk about here. I mean, we associate folklore with all these dark tales or, you know, things like songs and quilt making. But when it comes to the digital realm that we're in, all these systems that we interact with from Facebook to TikTok and Twitter and even LinkedIn, they're like folklore creation machines. And in future episodes, we'll talk about how memes and everything else fit into this because it is the mimetic nature of all these stories and ways that people just kind of make that their own, put their own little spin on it, tell their own story with it and shoot it out into the world. Yeah, memes are folklore. I think that's sort of the, the wildest thing that I've picked up in my brain as we've started this journey. And like Vivian mentioned, those platforms that we use to make it inform the way those stories look and appear. It's so cool. What was for you a takeaway or interesting bit that we didn't really get to cover in depth? I think Vivian had a quote about this, and I think she's going to talk a little bit more about this in today's interview that we hear. But it is really this concept of Jeffrey Cohen's monster theory, where he had all these different theses, but the fact that so much of monsters, the way that they manifest themselves in stories in our imagination, are caused by some kind of cultural crisis where these ways that we view the world come in conflict with one another. And so, um, really knowing that somebody has theorized these seven different theses of how monsters get created and spun out into society was uh, kind of eye-opening to me. So, monsters as a harbinger of categorical crisis is one of Jeffrey Cohen's monster theory theses, but there are seven of them. And uh, in the interview we'll hear with Vivian, she goes more into the category crisis one, but maybe we should briefly hit on what the rest of them are, because they're all interesting, although I do think that one's the most pivotal. Yeah, and we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes for anybody that wants to look this up, but we'll quickly go over those and then we'll get into the rest of today's show. So, theses one is the monster's body is a cultural body. Like the body of the monster literally incorporates fears, anxieties, desires, and fantasies built around whatever culture that created it. Number two is that the monster always escapes. Pretty self-explanatory, right? It always gets away. No matter how many, I think the example that they give in there is no matter how many times King Arthur kills the ogre of Mount St. Michael, it's always there again. Thesis three is that the monster is a harbinger of category crisis which is the one that we talked about briefly and we'll talk about more in a few. Four is the monster dwells at the gates of difference. Basically the idea that the monster is an exaggeration of some cultural difference that is off limits. I think we see that whenever we're hitting these big cultural crisis moments. So around anything related to uh, civil rights or identity and different national interests between countries, monsters and folklore get created out of that all the time. Because you're taking whatever the contentious issue is and making one side of it a monstrous difference. Exactly. It's very dark, but... Yeah, very, very dark. But once you know these things, once you have these in your head, just as a framework of thinking about how we create monsters and spin them out into the world, it's hard to unthink these things. You start to see how these get created everywhere. And then thesis number five is that the monster polices the borders of the possible. Basically something that indicates that exploration is not encouraged. What it says in the paper, curiosity is more often punished than rewarded. Thesis six is fear of the monster is really a kind of desire. The fear that's built around a monster is also an embodiment of wanting to know what it's hiding. And then thesis seven is the monster stands at the threshold. 
dot, dot, dot of becoming. It has a built-in ellipses. I like it. Yeah. This one confuses me a little bit. This was the one that I sort of had a hardest, the hardest time mm. like wrapping my head around into a single sentence. Yeah, because it's, it's very truncated. It's like one paragraph of text. They ask us to reevaluate our cultural assumptions about race, gender, sexuality, our perception of difference, our tolerance towards its expression. And they ask us why we have created them. So really, monster is a reflection. Yeah. But again, they all, like Vivian says, they all kind of bleed together a little bit. Yeah, they do. There's there's no strong border between any of these. But it is really interesting because as you start to think about society and whatever the current boogeyman is or wherever the current crisis is, you can start to see how these get reflected in monsters, how they start to get personified in popular culture. It's a fascinating toolkit to pick apart boogeymen. I need to grab a glass of water, uh, and then we should get into the interview tape that we have. So just a second. Hey, listeners, if you're like me and enjoy escaping to a real movie theater, then Regal Unlimited just makes sense. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. And your membership lets you get into premium format shows like IMAX and 4DX at a reduced cost. Plus, you'll save 10% on all non-alcoholic concessions. Regal Unlimited. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. So, if you're planning on seeing a couple movies this month, join Regal Unlimited. Now is the best time as summer's coming up. Sign up now in the Regal app or on the website at regmovies.com unlimited. And be sure to use the code FOLKLORE24 to get 10% off a three-month subscription. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. All right, so let's, let's kick it over to the interviews. 
A little bit later, we're going to hear from Kathleen Hale talking about mental health, the mental health care system in the United States and our juvenile justice system as we go a little bit more in-depth into the story of the Slenderman stabbings from an empathetic point of view. But first, we'll hear from Dr. Vivian Asimos, who will take us a little bit deeper into topics like narrative, monsters, and some of the other work that she's been doing. Oh, I've always been a big fan of storytelling and narratives and all things narrative. When I went to do my undergrad, I actually was originally doing a master's in creative writing because I wanted to be creating the stories and stuff. I very quickly ended up getting absorbed into the religious studies realm of life. So when I started to do a lot of work with religious studies and as an anthropologist of religion, I was always drawn to storytelling. I firmly believe that as humans, we are just stories wrapped in bags of flesh. And pop culture has always been a huge part of what I did when I was doing my undergrad and really falling in love with religious studies for the first time. I always was writing my papers about something in pop culture that it was relating to. So I have so many papers on like Lord of the Rings and Legend of Zelda and like whatever I could get my hands on that it somewhat in some way related to, I would throw it in there. And it wasn't until I started to go into my master's that I went, there's something really important here and it's definitely fun, but it's more than fun. There is something more deep here and more important that I want to dig into. You're doing a lot of study and in, in writing on religion. You're doing a lot of study and writing on cosplay. You've got the digital folklore piece. And then you also have the, the alt-ac.uk. How do all those worlds fit together? With a lot of late nights and not a lot of sleep. No, it, it actually all kind of boils together fairly well because of the fact that, you know, again, I, I see storytelling as being so involved in everything that for me, when I was studying digital monsters and online storytelling, that was all kind of the same. And the way that I'm approaching cosplay is that cosplay is an embodiment of contemporary mythology and our storytelling. It's storytelling through clothes. Alltac is an organization that I co-founded with a friend of mine who is also a sociologist of religion, Alad Thomas. Basically, it's the idea of alternative academia, alternative approaches to it, as well as people who don't necessarily fit what you traditionally think of as an academic, still identifying as academia and giving a home for those people in that research. For me, anyway, a lot of anthropology in particular, they privilege the kind of semi-colonialized idea of going to the exotic location and talking to the people who are often not white in order to talk about these exotic, weird, different locations. And I was coming in being like, I don't know, I chatted to some people online and I thought that was super cool. <laughs> and it's just this really different experience. I had someone tell me I wasn't actually doing field work because I wasn't in the jungle. You get a lot of um, trouble with that. People, I think, sometimes struggle with understanding, and not just academics, but even just people who maybe don't spend as much time on the internet, sometimes struggle with the idea that you can form real relationships and real communities purely virtually. And so there's always that kind of backlash or that fighting of going, yeah, but we're, we're talking about something real over here and you're talking about the internet and you have to go, no, the internet's real <laughs> like, and the experiences are real. I remember that being the prevailing opinion a lot around the time Slenderman happened in like 2009, like up until then. It feels like that's changed in the, probably not in academia, but in sort of the mainstream 
thought about the internet not being a quote unquote real place, it seems to be more acknowledged as real now. Obviously, I think some of the kind of chat language is still, even if it's a little bit tongue in cheek, it still kind of hints to that, you know, the, oh, well, my friends in real life, you know, those kinds of phrases. Right. Yeah, that's true. Which again, connotes that there's a, there's a slight difference there. But I do think that things are changing. I do think also that COVID has really altered it as people were forced to do a lot of things online and forced to find communities online. Focusing on digital monsters, in your Udemy course, you referenced Jeffrey Cohen's monster theory and the seven theses of what makes a monster a monster. Can you describe some of that and what makes that relevant for you when it comes to the study of folklore and digital monsters? Jeffrey Cohen was kind of one of the very first people to, I think, coin the idea of monster theory, which is this idea of this kind of interdisciplinary group of people that are all studying monsters. And he kind of gathered together an edited volume of all these different people, but he started it by explaining what he thought of as the kind of main primary ways that you can understand analytically what a monster is. The one in particular that I am always drawn to is the monster that is a harbinger of categorical crisis, I believe is the way that he phrases it, where it's basically monsters as hybrids. If you think of a griffin, for example, which is bodily a mixture of a lion and an eagle, it's a hybrid monster. It shows that these categories don't really exist in the world that this griffin exists in. But the categorical crisis monster can also be more cultural or social. You might not necessarily see it as a hybrid monster when you first look at it. And as an anthropologist, this is of primary interest to me. There's a, a thought in anthropology that we categorize our world as we start to interact with it. And these categories are very social or culturally based. So when we are growing up and we're being taught the world by our parents or our parental units, they will point out things into the world and say, you know, that's a tree. And then you go, okay, that's a tree. And you put it in the tree box. And then later you go and you see a tree that looks really different from that first tree, but they still point to it and say tree. And you catalog it as tree in the same little box. Different cultures might have different boxes. And so this is why it's very socially or culturally based. And what the monster does is it says, you know, those neat little boxes that you grew up with them very cleanly set aside of this is what this is and that is what that is. We're going to break it. We're going to show that these categories aren't necessarily as firmly set apart as you thought they were or that they blur together or that this box that you set aside doesn't actually exist. That's the thing that the monster does. And that's really fascinating for me because that really gets into the heart of what a society or a culture sees as important or sees as necessary for protection. A good example of this is just the vampire who is breaking the categories between living and dead, which are supposed to be very firmly set aside different categories, at least for typically Western cultural boxes. And so the vampire's fear is that your cultural categories are broken. If you had to apply that specifically to Slenderman, what would you say are the dominant categories that Slenderman is transgressing the boundaries of? Basically the category between reality and fiction. The, the storytelling mechanic of the Slenderman is this idea of pretending it as if real. And this is the case for a lot of creepypastas, but the Slenderman, I think, does it just chef's kiss the best. When you're thinking about creepypastas, it is a genre and people are knowingly writing fiction and fan fiction around that. And then all of a sudden, now you have groups of people that know it's fake, 
and are reading that and then somewhat being scared or pretending to be scared or wanting to be scared. And then you have other groups of people who hear about it second or third hand that now believe that it is a real thing as a folklorist, as a sociologist, as somebody who's interested just in people and how they work. What do you take from that? I mean, I think that's just how all storytelling is. I think a lot of people like to point at the Slender Man in particular and really online storytelling as this special thing of, oh, well, someone might be listening to it and not knowing. But urban legends have been around for a really, really long time that essentially have that same idea of, you know, I heard from a friend of a friend of a friend about this thing and I've gotten some of the details wrong, but I'm going to still repeat it and tell my friends about it. But it doesn't really matter whether or not it happened. And I think that what makes the Slenderman in particularly really interesting, and, and when you're looking at monsters, is that monsters essentially prove that stories can kind of live on their own and that it is the story that matters and not anything else. And belief is secondly, you know, we can kind of talk about belief as being this ultimate end all be all of, well, this person believed or this person doesn't believe, but that's not really important. What's important is the story and the way that people hold on to a story and the way that people find import in a story. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that willful suspension of disbelief that we perform when interacting with these stories and creating them. Because it's such a fascinating thing. Even from the perspective of urban legends and the way that we do that, there is a willful suspension of disbelief that seems to come with that, but that, that just makes people want to buy into it even more. I honestly don't like the idea of suspension of disbelief because I don't think that's how we work. I think we start with a willingness to believe. We start full in. When you go into a movie, you're not like, all right, let me wait till this movie gets me. Like, <laughs> you're going to go in being like, yeah, man, I'm excited to see Dune. And then it's something happens that you're like, oh, that's right. I'm in a movie. So it's something breaks you rather than something pulls you in. So I prefer willingness to believe rather than, <laughs> rather than suspension of disbelief. Yeah. Nice. I never thought of it that way. And that's really... I really like thinking of it as a willingness to believe. It does seem like with Slender Man, I guess there are so many boxes that got checked. All the things that make contemporary legend and the newness of the digital world as it was starting to come up. And then, of course, there was tragedy around it as well. But there's Slender Man specifically seems to have captured the attention of a lot of the uh, folklorist community. I mean, you mentioned Slenderman is kind of the chef's kiss of, of all these things coming together. What do you think really you can attribute that nexus to? It's a little bit of all of it. Even if you had every single element the same, except for the timing and you tried to do it now, I don't know if it would really work the same way. And the same for, I think, all of those elements. So if you removed one of those aspects, He's not alone. There are other creepypastas that really do have a really strong life of their own. I think the Slenderman is the most recognized and has really lived for the longest, which is really abnormal for internet stories, that people are still making jokes about the Slenderman and, and referencing it as a meme. And that's not really normal for the internet or something back in 2009 to still be at least somewhat kicking around. And I, I think that it has to do with the, the original post by, I'm going to use his username, which is Victor Surge was a, just a super well done Photoshop. It was so beautifully done and it allowed for a lot of fill in the blanks, which is always what the best kind of those paranormally photos do. And the posts that followed it were also so good. Like there was somebody that edited a German woodcut 
to look like the Slenderman. And it looks so much like them that you could imagine someone at some point is going to be writing like a history of German woodcuts and there's going to be a Slenderman one just like thrown in and they're not going to know because it's like a skeleton with multiple arms. Like you just don't really realize. So it's, it's really amazing what people did. And it was also the fact that they kind of both explicitly and implicitly had this understanding of we're not going to tell you what makes a slender man post a slender man post we're not going to define him there was a similar figure that popped up just before the slender man called the rake which was a kind of similar weird um, although it was a bit more animalistic the rake there wasn't as many people involved in it first of all and also they tried to define what the rake looked like from the very beginning they were like, this is what the rake is. These are its kind of primary features that it's going to have, which is great for, for getting a little mythos together. But really what makes the mythos is all the differences. <laughs> what makes the mythos is the kind of alterations in the agency of the storytellers. But I, again, even if you had the beautiful storytelling with the kind of agency of the stories, I don't know if you would get that in today's internet in quite the same way. There was something about 2009. It was also a, a very anxious period for internet communities because of what we were talking about. You know, people thinking that these communities aren't real, you're not forming real connections, but the internet was established enough that people were. And that anxiety of it exists, but it doesn't exist, the, the it's real, but it's not real, is what kind of got tied into this storytelling. That's a fascinating parallel that had not occurred to me, was the way the internet was treated is similar to the way Slenderman transcends those boundaries in, in his own mythos. Yeah. So the, the monster of the Slenderman of breaking this real and unreal category isn't just in his storytelling. It's also in the way that people felt about it. They saw these categories breaking and it was scary, you know, that to, to think of things that you've always thought of as not being real as suddenly being real and vice versa. With some of the tragedy that surrounded Slender Man, do you feel like every now and then you you have to be an apologist because there is this really interesting facets of Slender Man that you want to study about and that you actually get passionate about as a folklorist, and then it's kind of tainted by this you know tragedy that happened that you also have to acknowledge as part of the story of what Slender Man has become today. I honestly think that it kind of killed Slenderman in a way. People didn't really return to the storytelling in quite the same fervor, and a lot of them felt like they needed to justify it. I remember finally getting annoyed by about my fourth conference presentation when every single time I had done it, there was always a question about it, every single time. Because that's normally the only reference point that people would have, and then I wouldn't mention it. And in fact, in my book, in my introduction, I say, just so you know, I'm never mentioning this again. Because particularly the Wisconsin stabbings, the more important question is issues of mental health and issues of access to health care in the United States. I am not equipped to have those conversations in the same way that I'm equipped to have the conversations about my community. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll talk with Kathleen Hale about the mental health care side of this conversation. Stick with us. 
Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Hey ya, Mason here, and I don't think I've mentioned it on the show before, but I have two cats, two big old boys named Chester and Cinders, and I love them both very much. But I didn't grow up with cats, and I've never suffered from general allergies like pollen, so it took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that I was allergic to them. No joke, when I started working from home, I would say things like, wow, I feel like I'm losing my voice every day, or isn't it weird, I can't breathe through my nose for some reason. Ultimately, it was my partner who said, that really sounds like allergies. Allergies, and long story short, now I take a Claritin every day. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claret and Clear. Use as directed. Welcome back. Before the break, we had just Stop finished... Stop digging, digging! No, that's not food! Well, that tape does have mayonnaise on it. I mean, you gotta cut them some slack. Yeah, you're not helping, Perry. You're, you're not, not helping. You're putting mayonnaise no, on the tape. not food! Um... That's a total loss. Yeah, we don't have time to mess with that. We got to go straight back yeah, in. Yeah, no, we'll just finish this. I'll order another reel to reel on eBay. So before the break, we had been talking with Dr. Vivian Asimos, and we had kind of ended off when she mentioned the fact that she's always asked about the Slenderman stabbings, and she doesn't feel equipped to deal with the mental health aspects of that. So we're going to lead now into our interview with Kathleen Hale. And something that didn't make it into this interview, but I thought was fascinating... Kathleen was the first person to actually request the court documents from the courts in Waukesha, Wisconsin, because they have this weird practice there where they're like up to $5 a page for court documents. And those are hundreds of pages long. And the first person to request them pays more money. And so at the time, all of these journalists who are going to be writing about this at the time, what seemed like, you know, a fad news story, a, a viral news story didn't really have the budget for it in 2014 as everything was shifting to the online space and no one really knew how to monetize it. So she is literally the first person who bought those documents and was able to read them. And it's also kind of obscene that you have to pay for court documents. That's not very good for free press, you know? Yeah, it's, it's not good for anybody trying to seek the truth or to really understand what's going on. But luckily, Kathleen was the one that did that, you know, within the past few years. So very far removed from 2014. And what that does is it gives her some unique insight that hasn't really been brought to bear around the mental health aspects specifically, which we'll talk about today, but also a lot of the procedural aspects that may have had the effect of rearing their own monstrous heads in all of this. Over the past five years, I was researching and reporting on this Slenderman stabbing in Waukesha. So my book, Slenderman, Online Obsession, Mental Illness, and the Violent Crime of Two Midwestern Girls is the first full account of the crime, and it dispels a lot of myths surrounding the case, uh, the biggest one being that the victim died. She miraculously survived, and in fact, there were two horror stories that happened as a result of this crime. One was the crime itself. And the second horror story unfolded afterwards when the state of Wisconsin, where I'm from, proceeded to prosecute two mentally ill 12-year-old girls as adults. The way you've pulled it all together really feels like 
I feel like I know them a lot better and understand them because it these were kids who needed help. And I feel like the, we lose nuance in a lot of discussions. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good way of putting it. I think what I realized over the course of writing this book is that we have this association in our minds, especially in the United States, that if we are compassionate toward the assailant of a crime in any way, on any level, even as small of a thing as acknowledging their existence or listening to what they have to say, then we are being disrespectful toward the victim in the case. And I think it's very hard for people in this country because of how our justice system is built to hold these two things in mind that you know, Morgan Geyser victimized uh, Bella Leutner, also known as Peyton Leutner, in terrible, uh, grisly, unforgivable ways. And it is also true that Morgan was then victimized by our justice system. The other thing that just kept driving me on and on and on when I was writing this book was the fact that she did not receive medication after her diagnosis. She was diagnosed post-arrest and she did not receive medication for 19 months because of a number of things, because of how the adult judicial system is set up and they were charged as adults. They were not charged as children, even though Morgan had just turned 12. But it was also just, you know, negligence. The judge on this case continued to make decisions that meant that Morgan would not receive medication. And so during that entire time, she was in a state of psychosis, which I learned is extremely bad for you. She was isolated away from her parents in a windowless facility that did not allow her to touch her parents or see sunlight or anything like that. And so the conditions of the jail where she was awaiting trial, those exacerbated her psychosis and she lost the ability to read and do basic math. She was had a, had a high IQ, but she lost certain cognitive abilities during that time. And I was just shocked by the fact that no one cared and it was not being talked about when the case was being talked about. Yeah, we seem to have this we seem to have this weird thing where we treat empathy as weakness. And it's weird because I can't think of any situation where having more empathy would lead to a worse outcome. Yeah, totally. Or like any kind of empathy or humanity for people who've committed violent crimes somehow diminishes the seriousness of their crime. Or if we show them compassion that, you know, it diminishes their punishment. We are so desensitized in this country to endless, never-ending punishment for people who've committed acts of violence. We have a really, really long history of blaming child-on-child violence on new media, whatever the new media is at the time. So with Columbine, uh, the new media was violent video games and Marilyn Manson songs, when in reality, if you read Dave Cullen's book, Columbine, it, it dispels so many myths around the case. But it goes back and back and back. I mean, even Leopold and Loeb, which was 1924, that was called the crime of the century at the time. It was these two teenage boys who killed a 12-year-old boy, Bobby Franks. And that was blamed on detective novels, which were new. So it's like, we'll do whatever we can. We will bend over backwards to avoid talking about mental illness. You had the opportunity, actually, to talk with Morgan, right? Yeah, we spent a long time together. Is she doing better? Is she in a better situation? Is she getting the help that she needs? Well... She is in a setting that is physically safer for her than a prison. 
And so that was a huge win for her family because odds were high. If you look at statistics and just everything that was working against her, she was looking at 65 years in an adult women's prison that had a 200 name wait list for anger management programs, uh, much less any mental health uh, therapy that would have been available to her. And that would have been a very unsafe environment for her. And instead, she's at Winnebago Mental Health Institute, which is a forensic hospital, which is one of the only kinds of public psychiatric hospitals we still have. And it's for people, forensic means for people who have committed crimes. And so she's in an adult women's ward and has been since the age of 15, although she first went there shortly after her crime when she was 12 to get diagnosed. I would say it's definitely not probably what people imagine when they call hospitals a get-out-of-jail-free card. I don't think anyone would want to trade places with Morgan, and particularly not if they knew the odds around her release. She will probably never get out if statistics around not guilty by reason of insanity laws uh, say anything about it. It's a very, very bad place to be. It's, it's easy to get forgotten by the world in a forensic hospital. In a women's prison, if she had been sentenced to 65 years, she probably would have been up for parole, you know, and gotten out early if her behavior warranted it. And that would be up to the prison. And after 65 years, if she, as long as she hadn't committed any new crimes, and you know, let's say she's still alive, she'd be set free. But in a hospital, it's not up to the hospital if she leaves. It's up to the elected judge whether she leaves. And she was sentenced to 40 years. And let's say 40 years comes and goes, he doesn't have to let her out. He can just, and I say he because it's currently a man, but let's just say they don't have to let her out. They can just let it roll over, which doesn't exist in the prison system. So it's it's mind boggling. I had no, okay, I had no, absolutely no idea that that was how that worked at all. But that fact is horrifying to me. And now even more horrifying because I didn't realize that it, that the rules of the whole thing change that way. And you're, wow. Yeah, I didn't realize either. That's a lot to take in. Yeah, I didn't realize either. Yeah, our juvenile justice laws and our mental health care laws are like very draconian and weird and would not take place in any of the countries that we consider to be our peers. I mean, the reason that Morgan was tried as an adult is because of this 1990s theory invented by a Christian fundamentalist named John DeLulio Jr., who was a professor at Princeton in the 90s. And he came out with all this fake research, it was very racially coded, about how kids in quote-unquote urban areas were becoming wolves because they were being raised in in moral poverty, quote-unquote, and the only way to stop them from uh, committing crimes was to punish them more harshly and stop treating like them like children because they weren't children. They were what DeLulio called a super predator. And he said that this was all based on research. Very quickly, Democrats and Republicans came together in a rare act of unity to bake this fake theory into law. And across the country, everyone rushed to lower their minimum age for adult prosecution. And those laws still exist to this day, even though DeLulio came out just a couple years after this all started happening and was like, hey, guys, I made it all up. Nothing happened to him. He went on to work for the Bush White House. 
So many of these laws still exist to this day. And in Wisconsin, children as young as 10 are prosecuted as adults in in attempted homicide cases. I think in some aspects, much like how people can be forgotten when they get put into a place like this, the fact that this is what that's based on is just forgotten. And it's just, or the fact that this is how it is, is forgotten. Yeah. Because the people who have to interact with it and live by it are the people, like you said, who aren't good poster children for change. Right, exactly. Yeah, nobody, Morgan's mother did not know about this law until it was enacted against her daughter. Like, it's not something that people really know about. And I think the most ironic thing in this case is that at the end of the day, the super predator is no more real than Slenderman. How can we be so down on these girls for believing in Slenderman when a majority of adult lawmakers across our country came to believe in something called a super predator? To to come back to the, the, the story itself, like it's very easy to see the story and just say like, oh, these kids did something horrible because they believe something horrible. But if you like think back to being a kid and playing pretend and, and doing all these other things, like it's not... I don't know. It's just it's a very human thing that spiraled in a in a bad way. I think it's important to look at these people as the human beings that they are. Yeah, with the limitations that come with age and in Morgan's case the limitations that come with having such a rare kind of schizophrenia. Maybe you can tell yourself I would never stab anybody. I mean, I believe that about myself. You probably believe that about yourself. But what about our ability at the age of 12 to understand death? You can't. I remember thinking that if I died, it would be really fun because then I could go to my own funeral and hear people say nice things about me. Right. Like, I I fully believe that in my mind. It harkens to how you mentioned uh, Anissa thought that it would be like in a video game. Oh, you, you bop somebody one time and then they fall down and poof and vanish. And like, that's how I thought it worked when I was that age, too. Yeah. Yeah. And you didn't really think of it as permanent either. Like, cause you can't grasp permanence. Like it's actually the way our brains develop. It's impossible at that age to grasp permanence. So. I mean, that's why peekaboo works on babies. Yes. If you think about yes. it. Yes. <laughs> that's so funny. You just extend that a little bit into bigger concepts that are overwhelming as an adult with a mostly fully formed brain <laughs> and then try and put that on someone who's uh, not even a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. There's no easy solutions to any of this. I mean, the the issue is massive and ties just right back to both our attitudes about mental health and the systems we have in place. And Yeah, that was a question that I got recently is like, what would need to change? And unfortunately, I think that this is too broken to fix. Certainly in our lifetime, I would be bowled over with surprise if anything came to pass in a real way because... It would require so many different sectors of government to cooperate with one another, and it would require uh, lawmakers in places like Wisconsin to completely change the minds or stop caring about the minds of their constituents. It's just a very hard thing to to change because we have no more public mental health care centers. Those were shut down in the 80s, big time in the 80s. Most of them were converted into prisons. That's why we have this massive diaspora of homelessness, people who have schizophrenia. It costs a lot of money to treat it without health care. And most people who have health care don't have mental health care because that's not really considered to be a medical problem by and large across health care plans, which is its own problem. But if you don't have health care, 
staying in a public hospital costs $2,000 a day. And you can imagine that many people can't afford that. And so it makes mental health care a privilege of the rich and everyone else is just sort of left to fend for themselves in this system that doesn't really exist. And unfortunately, our largest mental health care system has become our prison system. And so in the United States, you don't have anywhere to go. Uh, The police can't pick you up and take you away, even if your family is like, no, you don't understand. Just a few minutes ago, he was trying to cut his wrists. What the police will do is they'll go up to him and be like, are you a danger to yourself or others? And this person who is likely in psychosis, and psychosis does not want to end itself, and it speaks for the person, and they say, no, I'm not a danger to myself or others. I mean, it's the stupidest question in the whole world. So you have to like talk this code in order to like get a 72-hour mental mental health hold. And then after that, it starts costing exorbitant amounts of money. So a lot of people, they don't receive the mental health care that they needed from the beginning until they commit a crime out of fear, confusion, paranoia, delusion. And so we've created this system where mental illness has become criminalized because the only method we have to treat it is prison. A huge thanks to Dr. Vivian Asimos and Kathleen Hale for lending us their time and expertise. You can find more Vivian's work on her website at vivianasimos.com. She's also written multiple books, co-hosts a podcast called The Religion and Popular Culture Podcast, and publishes the blog Incidental Mythology. Check out the show notes for links to all of her work. You can find Kathleen Hale's new book, Slenderman, Online Obsession, Mental Illness, and the Violent Crime of Two Midwestern Girls in bookstores or online in hardcover and ebook formats. We were lucky enough to get a pre-release copy of the book, and it was a very compelling and thoughtful read. Again, check out the show notes for a link. Digital Folklore is a production of Eighth Layer Media, which is really just Mason Amadeus and myself, Perry Carpenter, doing our best to learn everything we can about the fascinating world of folklore. If you're enjoying the show, please help us get the word out. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, text a friend about the show, post about us on social media. All of our information is in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Digby, no, stop, 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 stop. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Digby. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.